Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. The Shabbos, we continue the phenomenal story that no matter how many times we've heard it or know it, continues to unfold before our very eyes with great uh, curiosity and excitement. Story of our wonderful matriarchs and patriarchs. So we continue with uh, Parsha's Toldos. As always, we'll do an overview of the Parsha quickly and then delve into the Psukim, specific ones we want to look at together today. So our Parsha begins where last week left off. At the end of uh, last week's Parsha, Avram remarries and then he passes away. We spoke about last Shabbos afternoon, the fact that Yishmael shows up for Avram's funeral despite two weeks ago's Parsha, Yishmael being expelled from the home. Something happens, Rashi says he becomes a Balchuva, and the Ramban says that he defers to Yitzchak's greatness. And we studied the Pirkei de Rebeliezer, the Medrash, talks about Avram continued to have contact to pursue Yishmael, to make sure Yishmael knew that he loved him unconditionally, and that love brought him back. That was the end of last week's parsha. But we were reminded of uh, Yitzchak and uh, Rivka's union. Yitzchak and Rivka met. There's a, we know that Yitzchak was uh, 37 years old at the Akedah, and it was three years later that he met Rivka. He was 40, and she was how old? Three. So the Medrash says she was three. It's a very difficult Medrash, particularly for us. In contemporary times, it's very difficult for us to imagine. It violates many laws. For us to imagine Yitzchak marrying uh, Rivka, we do have a halachic principle in Judaism that at three years old, one is Roy Labia. It's a difficult principle, again, within our own contemporary context to understand, but that's how the Medrash assumes that Rivka at three was eligible for marriage, and that's uh, why it assumes she was that age. There are other Midrashim that conflict. There's been big discussion, particularly on the internet and blogs, about was Rivka really three? Was she older? How are we supposed to understand this? It's one of those, you know, the Gemara says that Afilu Sefer Torah has mazel. Even, you know, which Torah from the Aron gets used has mazel. Everything is mazel. So certain midrashim has ma- have mazel, that they're the ones that are taught to children in school, while other midrashim are neglected. So this is one of those midrashim that became universally uh, studied. Rivka was three years old. Was she really three? Not so clear, and probably not. But that's the medrash that became adopted, so everyone assumes it, but it's difficult to understand. So if you have trouble believing Rivka was three, you're okay because there are many opinions that say she was much older, and therefore you should not feel conflicted or confounded by it. So Yitzchak and Rivka marry, and our partial begins that like the other matriarchs, Rivka suffered from infertility. Rivka suffered from infertility. Before that, we're told, Eila told us Yitzchak ben Avram, Avram holy is Yitzchak, famous Rashi. Why does it have to tell us in both directions? Yitzchak is the son of Avram. Avram begat, Avram was the father of Yitzchak. Why the redundancy in both directions? An incredible Rashi tells us the Leitzane Hador. Isn't that an incredible term? Every generation has the Gedole Hador, the great of the generation, the great rabbis of the generation. And then there are the Leitzane Hador. Equal and opposite are the scoffers, the skeptics, the cynics of the generation. You know, the people about, no matter what's going on, they're negative and they're cynical and they're sarcastic and they're critical. Every generation had them. Avram had them. The Dafyomi we learned a few days ago in Shkol and David HaMelech had his. David HaMelech had those who would sit outside his window and would make fun. When will the base of Mikdash finally be built? Now, what did they mean? The base of Mikdash couldn't be built until when? Till he died. So they were saying essentially, is when are you going to die already? When we can have a base HaMikdash? So David HaMelech had his detractors. And Moshe Rabbeinu, Parshas Pekudeh, Eilu Pekudeh HaMishkan is why? Because there were members of the Jewish community who said, Moshe is embezzling money. 
Money raised for the Mishkan, Moshe has taken for himself. Moshe gave a complete transparent accounting. So Moshe had his detractors. And Mordechai, Mordechai saves the Jewish people in Shushan. And what's his great reward? How does the Megillah end? He's Ratzoi, Mordechai Ratzoi le Rov Echav. Mordechai was beloved to most. Not all, most. Ah, he just saved everybody? Still, there were people who attacked him, who were negative on him, who spoke about him, who, who were cynical about him. So it's good to know that the Leitzanei Hador exists in every generation. David Melech, uh, David Amelech, and Moshe Rabbeinu, and Mordechai. And here, Yitzchak. Yitzchak lives in the Leitzanei Hador. Say, Avram's not his father. His father's Avi Melech. Are you kidding? We spoke about last week that the Svarno says that that's what Mitzachik, Esav, was kicked out of the home because Esav also, um, not Esav rather, Yishmal, Yishmal also believed or tried to promote on the school playground. He said, my brother Yitzchak, you think Avram is father? Avram's not his father. Avi Malach is. He's Mitzachik. So therefore the Torah comes to tell us, no, we have to offset the Litzan Hador. There's a big, there's actually a discussion I saw. Why, uh, why does the Torah go out of its way to respond to Litzan Hador? Maybe they should be ignored. Torah goes out of its way to teach Eila told it's Yitzchak ben Avram, Avram only is Yitzchak. This is the legacy of Yitzchak, the son of Avram. Avram gave birth to Yitzchak. We have to mention that Avram is Yitzchak's father in order to offset, to reject the Leitzan Ador, the detractors, the scoffers, the cynics, the skeptics of the generation, the conspiracy theorists of the generation. Who cares? Ignore them. Be above them. Why does the Torah oppose them? So I think it's Rav Gifters, that's all, who says, you see from here the power of the Leitzan Ador. They can't be ignored. They're so strong and potent. Their negative force is so strong. They're such a cancer. If you're skeptic and cynical and, and, and try to promote scandals and conspiracy, it's so cancerous that it can't be ignored. The Torah had to respond to it. Fine. Rivka then is barren. Yitzchak and Rivka both daven. We've studied this section of the past. We won't go into it in depth. Why is Yitzchak's prayer more powerful than even Rivka's prayer? Tzadik ben Tzadik versus Tzadik ben Rasha. Rivka's hardly pregnant. She feels all kinds of activity. And it's uh, agitating. It's bothering to her. So she goes to consult an emissary of the Almighty who tells her, don't worry, there's two nations inside you. One will uh, serve the other. So uh, Rashi tells us what was the agitation, what did she feel when she passed the base of Odazara, when she passed the base Knesset, when she passed the house of idolatry, she felt kicking, when she passed the shul, she kept kicking. I always quote the Kliyakar every year. So, so she goes to see the emissary of God, and the emissary of God says, no problem, come on in. We're, not, we're just beginning the overview of Toldos. The emissary of uh, God says, there's more, there's more in the lobby. Take them here, they're all extras. These are extras. The emissary of God says, don't worry, you have two nations inside you. And Rivka says, oh, that's what's going on? Okay, she's satisfied. And the question is, what? She feels kicking at the house of idolatry. She feels kicking at the shul. Says there's two nations inside you. She says, oh, okay. Why is that, oh, okay? The fact that she carries the progenitor of a nation who is the source of idolatry and paganism, why is she satisfied? It's the Kliyakar of Lunshit says, Rivka's worst fear was that she was carrying one child who had multiple personalities. One schizophrenic child. One inconsist- inconsistent child. Right? Like we know from um, story of Elio, Admasai, how long are you going to sit on the fence? Choose a side. To be inconsistent, to be 
hypocritical or duplicitous or to, to try to be on both sides of an issue, that's the worst fear. It's almost better to have a passionate child for the wrong thing that you can turn around and channel for the right thing than to have someone who is so easily, uh, you know, flies with the wind, can be taken in either direction, who, what in politics they call flip-flops. A flip-flopper who doesn't have principles was Rivka's biggest fear, so she preferred to learn there were two that there were two uh, nations, then would be the opposite. But okay, let's, let's go quickly, because I want to get to Arpsukim. So uh, she finally gives birth. She has uh, Yaakov and Esav. Esav, of course, emerges first. Rashi tells us that Yaakov is actually conceived first, but Esav emerges first, and Yaakov exits holding on to the heel of Esav and uh, their personalities. As they grow, wonderful refersh and netziv that talk about the parenting, how this was, Esav emerges, the Esav, because his parents didn't differentiate him from Yaakov. If they would have seen early on that there were different personalities and tapered their, parent, their parenting approach and their educational approach towards their different personalities, Esav could have turned out a tzaddik. But because they tried to fit Esav into Yaakov's mold, Esav became Esav. We've studied in the past. The language that describes Esav is the same language in the book of Shemuel that describes David HaMelech. Admoni, the same word is used to describe David HaMelech. A passionate emotional warrior can become a David HaMelech who pours that passion into the book of Tehillim, becomes a warrior for the Jewish people, or if misdirected and misguided, becomes an Esav. And so, they, I, I would never feel secure, but they level criticism against Yitzchak and Rivka that they did not parent appropriately. If you, if you educate a child according to their way, understanding their, their strength, some have the capacity to sit and study and others run around. They're full of energy and they can contribute wonderfully in that way. You have to taper the education according to the child. Gam kiyask, and only then when they get older, will they not stray from you. But if you try to fit them in a mold, in a box where they don't belong, then they are ultimately going to, going to stray. So here, they grow up and their differences become clear. Yitzchak is taken to Esav and Rivka prefers uh, Rivka, we know. And... Uh, after Avram dies, Yitzchak is sitting Shiva. Yaakov prepares the lentils, the symbol of the cycle of life, like we eat the egg today, the Siddha Savra. And uh, Esav comes back, he's starving, give me some of that red stuff to eat. And, uh, and of course Yaakov arranges the sale of the birthright we've studied in the past. Is birthright something that's sellable? Is it a commodity? Can it be sold? What does that even mean? What was going on? Why did Esav sell it? Was it conniving of Yaakov to to manipulate and arrange the purchase. We've studied all that in the past. Then uh, Yitzhak now begins to follow the path of his father. And a famine forces him to flee. He can't go to Mitzrayim. Akash Baruch tells him no, because Yitzhak came on the altar as an Ola Tamima, as a pure sacrifice. Therefore, his holiness and sanctity didn't allow him to leave Israel. Didn't allow him to leave Israel. So instead he flees to the uh, land of the Plishtim, to Grar, where he pulls the same stunt as his father. She's not my wife, she's my sister. Avimelech says, that sounds familiar. Right, it's a different Avimelech, just the name of the president. Um, like you say, president or prime minister, Avimelech is the name of the head of the Plishtim. Paro is the name of the head of the Mitzrim. We've seen that before as well. So he says, I've seen that stunt before. And uh, we have their uh, back and forth. Yitzchak settles in Gerar. This is the section that we're going to analyze together. The story of the wells. Plishtim fill in the wells that Avram had dug. Yitzchak redigs them. Then Yitzchak tries to dig three new wells. They protest. Avimelech comes and 
reaffirms his treaty. Esav gets married. Yitzchak decides it's the end of his life. It's time to offer blessings. He tells Esav, prepare some good food. We studied this also. Why do you need good food before you bless? If blessing is something spiritual, why do you need to bless on a full stomach? Blessing you should do on an empty stomach. You should be angelic. You should not. You should transcend the material. Why is it the idea that in order to be a fountain of spirituality, you need to be satiated physically? What do we do at a siyum? You finish some learning. You're rewarded with Chinese food. You're rewarded with, uh, you're rewarded with good meal. Shavuos, which is the holiday that celebrates the giving of the Torah, the most spiritual of the three. Everyone agrees that you need an element, right? The machlok is chatzil lachem, chatzil lashem, kula lachem, kula lashem. Everybody agrees that Shavuos, that the most spiritual of the holidays, needs a component of you, of your physical, material happiness. So we've talked about in the past, why is spirituality need to rest? Why is it predicated on being physically satiated? So Yitzchak says, bring me something good to eat so I can give you a bracha. Rivka concocts the scheme, Yaakov comes and so-called steals the blessing, and Esav then arrives for his blessing, Yitzchak realized he was duped, and uh, Yaakov is forced to flee to Chut to his brother, to his uncle, rather, Lavan, for his life, and the, and the uh, Parsha ends. Okay, so that's an overview of our Parsha. So much to talk about within each of these cases. We've studied them in the past. You can listen to previous Parsha classes online if you like. What I want to study together begins with Shlishi. Shlishi. The Aliyah of Shlishi. Page 130 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. It's Perak Chavav, chapter 26, verse 13. Chapter 26, verse 13. What's happening here? We're at the end of the episode with Avimelech, where Yitzchak, there's a famine, he's forced to flee in order to get food, goes to Grar. And um, you know what's amazing that occurred to me this morning when I was looking at this? Both Avram, Yitzchak, they have access to the head. I'm saying, if there was a famine and we had to go to another country, would the story continue with you're all of a sudden being in the palace of the king? Meaning the president, the prime minister? <laughs> right? Avram has a problem and flees. Next thing you know, he's with the prime minister. Yitzchak's hungry and he goes to Grar. Next thing you know, he's meeting with the prime minister. It's pretty impressive. It says something about their prestige their own prominence, their own name and reputation, that we find the next scene is that they're being hosted by the head of the nation. It says something about their reputation already at that point. So of course, as I mentioned, he pulls the same, uh, the same thing, where he says that Rivka is my sister, and Avimelech is uh, with Yitzchak, Avimelech overhears Yitzchak and Rivka together intimately, realizes that it's his sister, and uh, complains and so on. Okay. And what happens at the end? Pasuk Yud Beis, go back to verse 12. After this episode, and Abimelech uh, sends Yitzchak on his way, Yitzchak plants that year, and he finds in that year, he reaps, he benefits a hundred times what he anticipated doing. He's overwhelmed with blessing. The source of Mea She'arim, the name of the city, of the uh, area. Mea Sharim, a hundred gates, a hundredfold, he benefited. Rashi tells us, Why are we given a number and what does it mean a hundredfold? Yitzchak was very scrupulous about tithing. He gave tzaka. 
So he had estimated how much he anticipated making because he was going to give 10% to charity. When it turned out he made 100 times, he obviously had that much more charity in order to give. Vaigdal ha'ish, vayelech haloch vegadel ad ki gadal mod. Verse 13. Vaigdal ha'ish, the man grew up, the man became great. Vayelech haloch vegadel, and he continued to increase in his greatness, ad ki gadal mod, until he became very great. It's a very peculiar pasuk, isn't it? It's a number of peculiarities. Why does it refer to him as Haish? We know what we're talking about. We just said in the last Pasuk, Yitzchak. Why now in this next Pasuk is he called Haish, the man? I'll tell you the truth. This bothered me and I looked and not one of the Mephorshim here says anything. No one else seemed to be bothered. Well, we're on verse 13, chapter 26, verse 13. Why is he called Haish? I don't know. Anyone have a suggestion? At this point, he's an Ish. Remember, he'd been called often a Nar. When his father took him for the Akedah, how old was he? 37 years old, and he's called a Nar, a lad, a young man. So this maybe represents some transition from being a Nar to an Ish. Vaidal Ha'ish. Then he was a Nar, now he's an Ish. What happened that he became an Ish? The episode with Avimelech. I think surviving the Akedah would make you a man. Yes. Oh, yeah, we'll see. His wealth was a source of great envy in a moment. So maybe that's Vayigdal Ha'ish. He became a man of, of prominence, of great wealth, and the source of envy. Yeah, that could be. I found it interesting that nobody else was bothered by this. Even the rest of the verse seems very um, strangely constructed. Vayigdal, Gadel, Adki Gadal. Right? Just referring to his greatness. But... Nobody really extrapolates exactly what it means. So he leaves room for you. All of you. Write your own parish. Suggest what maybe this means. So what happens? He acquires great wealth. Cattle, livestock, and avudaraba. And he was the source of great jealousy. The plishtim, the Philistines, were very, very jealous. I know what miknetzon, I know what miknebakar. Cattle, livestock, what is Avuda Rabbah? What does it mean he acquired great Avuda? What is Avuda Rabbah? So here you have a big, big, big machlokas. Says Rashi, Pu'ula Rabbah. He had a lot of businesses. He had a lot of businesses. He was an entrepreneur. He had a lot of uh, businesses going on. Enterprises, businesses. Look at the Ibn Ezra. Avuda, Avadam Ushvachos Sheyavduhu. He had a lot of servants. Vutoa Hashem, Oshem Kemoskula. Avuda means, Ovdim means those who worshipped. He had a great um, staff. He had a very large personal staff that took care of him. That was a source, a sign of great wealth. Not only his assets, Miknetzon and Miknei Bakar, but Avuda Rabbah, he had a large entourage of staff as well. So Rashi says it reflects his business. The Ibn Ezra says it reflects his personal staff. Look at the Rashbam. Avodas sados ukramim. Kistam avoda avodas karkehi. It means he had a lot of um, fields and vineyards that were being worked. Avudaraba, he had a lot of real estate, he had a lot of property that was being worked. So, in addition to the livestock, which are the um, what you call uh, metaltalim, what you call uh, movable, even the hookshu la karka, but he had a lot of karka, he had a lot of, of real estate as well. 
says the Tzvarno, Avudaraba, Karka Mucham Lios Ne'evad. So the Rashbam says he has fields and vineyards already being worked. The Tzvarno says he has real estate that's fertile to be worked. So you have four different opinions. What do you see that's clear is? He was rich. He was very wealthy, but all of the commentators are struggling with defining Avudaraba. It's an unusual term. So Rashi says he has businesses. Ibn Ezra says he has a great staff. The Rashbam says he has fields in full operation. And the Svorno says he has a lot of empty fields that are waiting to be developed. Very interesting. The Ramban also weighs in a fifth opinion. He had donkeys and camels and, uh, and animals, mules and, and servants and staff. Why do we mention all these things and not the commodities, gold and silver? Because in the land of the Plishtim, he didn't amass wealth of the commodities like Avram, of gold and silver. His wealth was his business, his residual income. He had this great, um, great assets. He had great business. And that was the source of the jealousy of the Plishtim. In a moment we'll see that Avimelech says, you have become greater, mightier than us. Says the Ramban, what does that mean? I'm the king. I'm the king and you're overshadowing me. It's not right. It's like the president telling Bill Gates, like, what are you doing? You're the wealthiest man. You can buy and sell countries. You're changing the world. I'm supposed to be the wealthiest. I'm supposed to be the most powerful. And you're more powerful than I, through your wealth. That was a source of great jealousy. It's an embarrassment. It's a shame. It's humiliating, Avimelech tells Yitzchak, that I'm the king, royalty, and you have more than I do. You're overshadowing me. And that's when he tells Yitzchak, find another place to live. So you see that the Ramban says that Yitzchak's wealth is described not in gold and silver, but in comparison to what a king would have, which is staff, livestock, assets, fields, real estate, and so on and so forth. Okay, continuing. So we saw five opinions. Avu Darabah. Pasuk Tezvah, verse 15. V'chola be'eros asher chafru avdei aviv b'mei Avraham aviv, sitmum plishtim v'yimalum afar. And all of the wells, wells that his father, or that were dug by the servants of his father in the day of Avram, his father, were, were sealed. The plishtim v'yimalum afar. They were sealed and they were filled with earth. Is that redundant, to be sealed and filled with earth? Yeah. No. Yeah. You can just put it oh, so look at the Orach exactly. It says, Reb Chaim Ben-Atar, Lo speak lomar malum afar. It wasn't enough to say they were filled with earth. Ulai ki achar mos avram sot davka also avanam lepiyam. Maybe when Avram died, and they no longer felt intimidated, or they no longer respected Avram, so they put a rock on top of the well. V'lo botlam behechlet. They didn't actually destroy them. They didn't fill them. They just covered them. And they sat there dormant. But it was only after the jealousy, the envy they felt for Yitzchak. So now, that, now what they did was wicked. Now it was pure evil. It's wickedness. It's pure evil to fill a well. You know how much effort it takes to dig a well? Anyone here ever dig a well? Didn't think so. Neither have I. But from what I understand, digging a well 
is a huge effort. Digging a well in order to hit water and to create a water source is tremendous work. It's a big investment. And to fill it in is just to destroy someone else's effort. You know, there are people whose homes are foreclosed. I had to deal once with somebody like this. Who, when their home was foreclosed in an act of pure wickedness to the bank, flushed cement down the toilet and all the drains so that all the pipes and plumbing of the home, when the cement hardened, was destroyed, it all had to be dug out and redone. Right? It's an act of pure riches. It's pure wickedness. It's pure, ma- pure wickedness. So that's what Yitzchak endured. They were jealous. Yitzchak didn't do anything to hurt anyone. But how are they going to get even with Yitzchak? His water source... Now why did Yitzchak need the water source? Whether for the cattle and livestock or for his fields. In either case, if Yitzchak's prosperity is good to continue, he needs water. So when you go to someone's water source and cut them off, you're cutting off their stability, their livelihood, their future... It's wickedness. Yitzchak did nothing to hurt them. Why did they do it? Pasuk tells us why. Jealousy. Pure jealousy. So says the Orachayim, yeah, when Avram died, they had no use for Avram. He was gone. His legacy was over. They were relieved. As much as they might have respected him, as much as they might have had a treaty with him. But when he was gone, they had no inhibition to cover his wells. But now when they get jealous of Yitzchak, now they fill the wells. Now they destroy the wells. Now they destroy the wells. If you look at the uh, Svarno, it says the Svarno, Sitmum Plishtim, Kasher Yiru Mitzvah Zavimelach, Levilti Hizikli Yitzchak, Sismu Abeiros Besinas Kinasim. Avimelach had said when he sent Yitzchak away that nobody was to touch him. If anybody touched or harmed Yitzchak or Rivka, they would die. So they knew they couldn't touch him. They wanted to kill him. That's how jealous they were. They knew they couldn't kill him. What was the next best thing? You're going to kill him if you fill his wells. And he has no access to the water. Vayomer Pasuk Tezayim, verse 16. Vayomer Avimelech al-Yitzchak, leich me'imanu, ki yatsamta mimenu ma'od. It's time to move on. Get, go from Grar, leave, leave. Because you're, you've become mightier than, than I am. And as we said, that, that's not good for the king, to have someone else who has more power. Vayelech misham Yitzchak, so Yitzchak in fact listened. Which we'll see in a moment. I'm going to describe this. This somehow contributes to the image of Yitzchak as passive, as meek. Yitzchak doesn't look at him and say, I, "I'm supposed to." You leave. God promised this land to my father, to me. I did nothing to hurt anyone. This wealth is mine. You want me to? You leave. Yitzchak doesn't say that. What happens? Avimelech says, "You've become mightier than us. There's not room enough for both of us." Yitzchak says, "Okay." That contributes to the image of Yitzchak as, as very passive. And where does he go reside instead? In the valley of Grar. And he dwells there. And Yitzchak digs, redigs the wells of his father that had been filled in after Avram died, and he gives them the very same names that his father gave. Again, no creativity, no innovation, nothing new, no new contribution. Yitzchak just digs the same exact wells, and then even gives them the exact same names. What? Maybe that's just honoring 
Not necessarily a bad thing, but you'll see what I'm building at in a moment. See what I'm building at in a moment. The Rashbam actually says, you're right, there are those who say it was to honor his father. The Medrash says it was a display of Kibbut Av. And we learn from here, says the Medrash, that the Medrash describes that everything that Avram did, Yitzchak did. Avram left in the famine, Yitzchak left in the famine. Avram said she's my sister, Yitzchak said she's my sister. Avram made a treaty with Avimelech, and we'll see at the end of the story, Yitzchak makes a treaty with Avimelech. Avram dug wells, Yitzchak dug, dug the same wells. So, and it concludes, this is a display or an expression of great kibbutz that we sometimes feel that we need to innovate from our parents, but actually continuing the tradition of our parents may be the proper method. We'll speak about that in a moment. But the Rashbam says it's strategic. Why did he call the wells the same name as his father? Because now that he redug these wells, he didn't want anyone to come and say, you just stole our well. By the way, what does it mean to steal a well? It doesn't mean the actual hole, but it means the water that you're drawing from the well actually comes from far away, and it's our water. So in order for him, Yitzchak strategically redug these wells and strategically gave them the same name as his father in an effort to avoid conflict, to avoid suspicion, to avoid someone accusing him of stealing the water. Was there a question? Yeah, I was going to say to establish the inheritance that it was his. Oh, to establish that it was his and to remove any false accusation that he had taken it. So what happens? Yitzchak's servants dig in now the valley of Grar and they found fresh water. Now he digs new wells. The first, he's going to dig three new wells. The first two he has fights over. So what happens? The shepherds of Grar come to the shepherds of Yitzchak and they say, the new well that you've dug, the water it's drawing is our water. He named the, the well Asek. He names it um, Asek, which means contention. They fight with him. There's conflict. So they dig another well. And the shepherds of Grar fight with him here also. And Vayikra so what does he name it? Sitna, which means also a higher level, even more than conflict, a, a dispute. He digs a third. Here there's no fight. And they name the third well, Rechovos. And the third well is called Rechovos. And he says, for now Hashem has granted us, Rechov is a wide, broad, a, uh, open space, so we can be fruitful in the land. The third well they did not fight over. So the question I want to discuss with you this morning, what's going on here? This picture of Yitzchak that our parsha is painting, what in the world is going on here? The truth is, if you look, you'll see that Sefer Bracious, of the three Avos, the three patriarchs, the book of Bracious dedicates the least amount of space to developing the personality of Yitzchak. This is his parsha. This is basically it. And even his parsha, when he's on stage, even when he's the main character on stage, the other characters play such powerful roles that they almost overshadow him. Yitzchak's hardly described at all. The overwhelming majority of the first part of the book of Bracious is Avram. From our Parsha through the end of Bracious is Yaakov. This is the only Parsha that deals with Yitzchak. And even when it deals with Yitzchak, first he shares the beginning with Rivka, then he's got this Avimelech, 
later, now once Yaakov and Esav emerge on the scene, it's all about them and the birthright. And then again, it's about Rivka manipulating the, the bracha. Yitzchak barely has any play whatsoever. He's eclipsed by the activities of others. Yitzchak is a very enigmatic figure. And Yitzchak can be painted in very different directions. True, he's the offspring, the progeny of, of Avraham, but he seems meek and passive. It seems like the Akedah he never really recovered from almost. And if one wants to, they can read our Parsha in a very kind of demeaning way, looking down at Yitzchak. He's just not impressive. Avram revolutionizes the world. Avram and Sarah go on talk shows and write books and go on the speaking circuit. They teach the world ethical monotheism. They fight paganism. They amass tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers. Unbelievable. Yaakov, Yaakov has 12 children. He begins to turn from a family to a nation. And he really promotes the teachings. What is Yitzchak's contribution? What does Yitzchak do? Who's Yitzchak? He redigs the same wells. As I described to you from the Medrash, he does the exact same things as his father. When we daven, let me just finish the question. When we daven, we reference each of these avos. Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov. By the way, why don't we just say Elokei Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov? Davening could be half a second shorter. Why do we say Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov? In fact, I would argue it's dangerous. It applies more than one God. So the answer is, many commentators say, to remind us that there's not one relationship with God. Coming back to the notion of not fitting people in a mold. You can't fit people into this is the way to connect to God. Some connect to God through learning. Some connect to God through chesed. Some connect to God through davening. Some connect to God through connecting with other people. Some connect to God through introspection, meditation, and being alone. There's many, many, many different ways. There's a lot of faces to connecting to God. Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov. We begin our Amida by remembering, by reminding ourselves, it's okay to develop our own way to connect to God. Not that there are more than one, not that there's more than one God, but there's more than one of God's creations, and we each relate and connect to Him differently. Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov. So Elokei Avram, I understand what Avram stood for. Elokei Yaakov, I understand what Yaakov stood for. When you say Elokei Yitzchak, what are you thinking about? What did Yitzchak stand for? Who's Yitzchak? What's his contribution? He's so eclipsed. We'll come back to you in one second. Hello. No, apropos your question, you have every one of the Avot and Beautiful, beautiful. Exactly. So we'll develop that exactly in a second. That Yitzchak essentially is a role player. Right? He, he's a link in the chain. He's steady Eddie. He gets it done to pass the baton on. And that too is a, is a, is a form of greatness. Yibani. Good. He's the spirituality of the Jewish people. He's intense. 
I mean, that's, that's his quality. If Avram is chesed and Yaakov is emes, Yitzchak is gvura. It's intense. It's, very, it's, it's an intensity. Intensity doesn't necessarily, is not necessarily transformative or revolutionary. But it's intense in continuity, in, in the presence of spirituality. Good. Someone else had a comment? So, same, same idea. So I want to share with you, building off of what Helen suggested, it's a very, it's an interesting look. I think it's particularly relevant in our contemporary society. You know, in, in our contemporary world, the bigger and the brighter and the more, the more public and the more famous and the more celebrity, the better you are. It's more glorious and satisfying to follow. I'm sorry, it's more glorious to, to lead than to follow. Right? To be a leader, to be out front, to be the spokesman, to be on the stage. You want to have a lot of Twitter followers and a lot of friends on Facebook and to have a lot of FaceTime and to show a picture of, of who you're with. It's, it's unbelievable that, uh, that everybody wants to be out there. To pioneer and to blaze new trails brings with it admiration and respect and glory, exposés, feature presentations, articles. But to, uh, but to be a link in the chain, to be the continuity... There's not a lot of glory. There's not a lot of publicity. There's not a lot of celebrity. There's not a lot of power. It's very challenging because of that. And we seem to diminish that. Particularly, by the way, if you... And I don't want to digress to this subject. But, you know, we think that whoever gets to be the chazan, whoever gets to get the aliyah, whoever gets the public spot, oh, that's the... And everybody else, it's not fair to me. Why, why can't you be a role player who helps make up the minion? Being the tenth person for the minion is much more, is much more noble and chashev than actually being the chazan. Being the tenth player, tenth person who's really the role player who makes the minion, there's no glory. You don't stand on the bima. Nobody's listening to your voice. Nobody's answering your borchu. But being the minion maker, being the tenth person, getting it done, is actually much more noble and virtuous. And has a far greater reward than the one who gets to, sadly, we live in a world that says, you're better if you have more of a speaking part. The more of a speaking part you are, the better you are. So, uh, you, know, you know the story of the boy who tries out for the school play and he comes home? Everyone knows this one. It's a classic. The boy who tries out for a school play, he comes home and uh, his mother asks him, how did he go? And he said, it's fine. She said, what you? He said, I got a minor part. She said, what part do you have? He said, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the Jewish husband. His mother storms into school and demands to speak to the drama teacher. She says, what's the matter? He says, I want my son to have a speaking part. <laughs> anyway, so, so we think, um, an oldie but goodie. Every time, Mari. They like that one every time. Every time. So we live in a world that says the bigger your speaking part, the louder you are, the more people listening, the greater you are. And the more you're in the background, the quieter you are, the more invisible you are, the less significant you are. Yitzchak teaches us that that's not true at all. You could be invisible and you can be quiet and you could be in the background and you can contribute more than the loudest, most visible person. Because if you're a role player, if you're a team player, if you're a link in the chain, if you get it done, transmitting and paying it forward, then that's the most important thing. So Yitzchak's profound legacy is the satisfaction he found in following the footsteps of his father under different and difficult conditions. 
Right? His incredible contribution is his commitment to redig the wells of Avram to channel that water to wherever it was needed. In other words, Yitzchak, under difficult conditions, redigs the wells, gives the same name. But if Yitzchak didn't play the role that he did, would there be a Yaakov? Would there be 12 Shvatim? Would there be, would we be here? Would there be a Jewish people? So we look back and the entire existence of the Jewish people, the 12 tribes, Yaakov Avinu, is only due to the persistence and the consistency and the showing up of Yitzchak. So while Yitzchak looks, I hate to use this word, but pathetic according to modern day standards that we need to see him be in the bright lights and shine and be transformative and be loud, but in the reality of the transmission of what we have today, Yitzchak is a key player. Without, who, without his contribution, we literally wouldn't be here. He doesn't seek glory or acclaim. It doesn't come through innovation. It doesn't come through creativity. But it comes through the strength of being an unbreakable link in the chain that connects Avram and Yitzchak. And I think that when we look back at Jewish history, are there individuals who transformed the Jewish people? No question about it. But you know who the real heroes of the Jewish people are? The anonymous people who make the minion. The anonymous people who do the chesed. The anonymous people who show up when called upon. It's the anonymous Jews, the anonymous women who continue to use the mikvah in the frigid, freezing, cold winter. It's the anonymous Jews who continue to only eat kosher food when it wasn't easy to get. It's the anonymous Jews who, who didn't work on Shabbos when they moved to America, even though it meant finding a new job every Monday. It's the anonymous Jews of Jewish history who continued our value system even when there's no articles, there's no books written about them. They're not heroes whose names are, 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 are mentioned on a regular basis or studied. They're the anonymous Jews who just turned it in, a good game, each and every day, what they needed to, in order to continue the Jewish people. They are following in the footsteps of Yitzchak, and I think that's Yitzchak's greatness. Let me put it to you differently by telling you a story. When I use this idea in a drosha, I told this story, which I think articulates this. 1967 a little bit before my time, if you enjoyed football in those years, you remember the Ice Bowl. Anyone remember the Ice Bowl? No. Green Bay Packers against the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> what happened? Quarterback Bart Starr, the Green Bay Packer quarterback. 13 seconds to go, a one-yard sneak in order to give a 21-17 win over the Dallas Cowboys. The game remains arguably one of the greatest in NFL history. It was the Ice Bowl. It was freezing cold, snowing, ice. You couldn't pass came down to the last 13 seconds and the quarterback ran a quarterback sneak across the, across the end zone to win 21-17. So right after the game, Bart Starr was surrounded by the media. He was the hero. Green Bay Packer fans everywhere were celebrating him and were, uh, were uh, giving a l'chaim to him. Green Bay Packer famous coach Vince Lombardi got all the credit. It was a gutsy call to make and Bart Starr ran the gutsy run right across the the, uh, the end zone for the touchdown, the victory in this unforgettable game. Bart Starr was being hoisted on the shoulders as they marched off the field, celebrated. Unbelievable. And the truth is that if you're a football fan, particularly of that era, ask any real football fan the name Bart Starr, the Ice Bowl, they all know it. Green Bay Packer hero, one, one of the most unforgettable names, unforgettable games. But most people don't know the name, never heard the name Jerry Kramer. Who's Jerry Kramer? Anyone here ever hear of Jerry Kramer? Jerry Kramer, if you go back and look at the replay, 
Go on YouTube and look at the last play of the Ice Bowl, 1967 Green Bay Packers against the Dallas Cowboys. You'll see that <clears throat> on that famous one-yard run, something remarkable happened. Bart Starr, the call was played. It was a gutsy call. It was a gutsy call for Vince Lombardi to make. And Bart Starr ran the run. It was a gutsy run. But at first, when Bart Starr was about to head to the end zone, there was no way he was going to make it. There was no way to make it through that defense. But there was an offensive lineman for the Packers named Jerry Kramer. He had an unbelievable block. He set an incredible block that opened up the defense just enough for Bart Starr to sneak through across that yard in order to win. Everyone knows Ice Bowl. Everyone knows the name Bart Starr. Everyone knows the name Vince Lombardi. Nobody's ever heard of Jerry Kramer. But that's Yitzchak. The person who sets the block without whom the run can't be made, without whom this touchdown can't be scored. He doesn't have the glory. He's not hoisted on anyone's shoulders. He's not being interviewed and surrounded in the locker room after the game. But if you look back carefully at history, you realize that if you don't set that block, that run never happens and we lose. Yitzchak set a block. By redigging those wells and giving the same names, he set a block in Jewish history that allowed Avram to run through to Yaakov, that allowed the legacy to continue to the point that we have today. So it's not about the glory, and it's not about the fanfare, and it's not about the public persona, and it's not about the power or the title. It's about showing up. I think Yitzchak becomes an archetype. So Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov then become three paradigms of Jewish living. There are transformational leaders, and there are those who are role players, who are successful links in the chain, who go down in history anonymously, but if they didn't exist, we wouldn't have what we have today. And I think ultimately that's what's going on with Yitzchak. And that's Yitzchak's role, that's the paradigm and the model that Yitzchak is for us. I want to, I want to go through the Ramban and the Kliyakar in closing. Because the Ramban sees different symbolism. It's a famous Ramban. The Ramban sees this dispute over the wells not as a dispute for the moment between Yitzchak and the shepherds of Grar, but he sees it as prophetic, eschatological. It has to do with the, the, uh, the uh, period of redemption, the future. What's really going on here? We know that what our patriarchs went through, it's a sign, a symbol, it's an indication of the future of what we will live. So what can we see from here? We don't have wells today. What do you see from here? Look at the Ramban. Look at the Ramban. Yes. You see the Ramban Pasakhaf, the first of the new wells that are dug is called Asak, which means contention. It means a fight. It means a quarrel. Why is our verse going on here? The only section that we talk about Yitzchak is a prolonged description of a dispute over wells. It doesn't sound like a good use for the real estate of the Torah. There's no real takeaway from the story. And says the Ramban, it certainly doesn't contribute to the glory of Yitzchak. You don't walk away from the story and say, Oh, Yitzchak, that's incredible. That's amazing. That was Yitzchak. Yitzchak does the exact same thing of his father. Says the Ramban, there's something hidden. There's something concealed in here. Torah here is not telling us about this story for the story's sake. Because there's really nothing in this story. Torah tells us the story because of its prophetic value. It says they dug, and what did they discover? A fountain, of, a well of living water. What is likened to the water? 
Torah. Torah, the Jewish people. This is a description of the house of God, the base of Mikdash that will be built. Yitzchak calls the first well, Esek. What was the demise of the first temple? Our enemies had conflict with us. The Babylonians picked a fight with us until the point that they destroyed the first temple. So the first well is called Asek. It reflects the first temple and its destruction was because of the conflict, the confrontation, the Asek, Hiskasku, with the other nations. Hasheni, the second well Yitzchak called, Karashma, Sitna. Shem Kashem and Arishon. It's a harsher name. Sitna means even more enmity, hindrance, even more hatred. In the second temple, there was hatred. Why was the second temple destroyed? Seneschinam, baseless hatred. So the second well is a description, it's a prophetic description of a second temple which will be built, but the second temple will be destroyed because of baseless hatred. The third is called this is the third temple, which please God will be built in our speedily in our day. And it will be built. Why will it be built? When people observe the civility statement. When there's no conflict, when there's derecheretz. When people treat one another with derecheretz. When you explain, your, what, is, what does rechovos mean? It means a street, a rechov. Why is a street called a rechov? Harchava means it's wide, it's expansive, it's spacious. So why is the third well, why is the third base of Mikdash called expansive? And why is it different than the second? Because there's enough room for everyone and their opinion and their lifestyle and their observance and their choice. Second base of Mikdash didn't have room for everybody. It was my way or the highway. If you're not like me, sin is chinam. I hate you for no reason. So I ridicule you, and I put you down, and I call you names, and I dismiss you, and I marginalize you. And what was the result? Second base of Mikdash was destroyed. Sin is chinam. The third base of Mikdash says the Ramban is called prophetically Rechovot. Rechovos. Harchava. It's wide, it's spacious, it's expansive. There's room for everyone because there's derecheretz. There's no conflict. So that's the Ramban. The Ramban sees in the story of the wells not just a mundane story. Torah wouldn't record it when there's really nothing here. And it doesn't positively reflect on Yitzchak. Says the Ramban, why is the Torah recording it? Because it's prophetic. The first temple is called is called uh, Asek, this conflict. Second temple, Sitna, this baseless hatred. The third and lasting and final temple, B'meir of Yamenu, is Rechovot, Rechovos, because it's expansive, there's room for everyone and their opinions when people live with Derech Eretz. Adds the Kliyakar. Kasav Ramban, V'chein B'Sefer told us Yitzchak, V'chein B'Sefer Menorah Samor, V'shakom HaShe'ir La'avos HaYasim L'Bonim, Al-Kein Matsu Makom Lidrosh, Kol Nyanim Be'eros Elo, Agim Abatei Mikdash V'shnikru Be'er Ma'im Chaim. Says the Kliyakar, all these commentaries say that the 
the experiences of, of our parents, of our patriarchs, is an indication for us. So therefore they extrapolate, they expound this section as an indication of the three basic Just as there is conflict in the first two wells, nations will create conflict with us in the first two temples and destroy it. The third, let it be built speedily in our day, is called Rechovos. Says the Kliyakar, I want to add my own. I want to add my own. Comment to the Ramban. That we will, the verse says that we will dwell in the land, and ufarinu, we will pruuravu. It means to um, multiply. We'll multiply in the land. We know what our rabbi said. The heads of the Jewish people had fights. The Jewish people are called shepherds. Here, what does it say? The Ro'e Grar, the shepherds of Grar fight with the shepherds of Yitzchak. So the Nesia Yisrael, the leaders of the Jewish people, are called our shepherds. What happened at the end of the first temple? The split in the kingdom. The kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the Roe, our shepherds couldn't get along. In the time of the second temple, it wasn't just our Roim, it wasn't just our shepherds who couldn't get along, that there was a split in the kingdom, it was all of the Jewish people couldn't get along. So with the first well, it says, it was a fight among the shepherds. In order to hint, he says there's a difference. He named the bear fight, conflict. Why? There's a difference when people have a conflict when there's something to fight about. Fight about power, money, women. There's something to fight about. Yankees, Red Sox, something worthwhile to fight about. People have a real fight, so it's not acceptable, it's not tolerable, but it's understandable that there's a conflict. But he says, what is the indication of the name? When you name a well, fight, it means they're fighting for the fight's sake. There are people who just live for the fight. There are people who live to fight. They're just always fighting. They're looking for the fight. They live for the fight. They get a rise out of the fight. They're always they're in a fight. So there's no, it doesn't matter what the fight is. The fight's not because of the cause. The cause is to justify their desire to find a fight. In the first temple, there was a legitimate fight. There was a fight over power. The kingdom, the split in the kingdom. By the second temple, they were no longer fighting because there was something worth fighting about. They were fighting for the sake of fighting. That's really our demise, says the Kliyakar. When you fight for the sake of fighting, says the Kliyakar, to fight for no reason, is for no reason, there's no cause, there's nothing to fight about. 
אפילו הפחוסם היסונים זה לזה על דל דבר. כי ארכן נקרא סינאסם סינאס חינם. That's why it's called חינם. It's baseless hatred. You're not fighting about anything meaningful. There's no result to your fight. There's no tug of war over something that somebody will acquire. It's a fight for the sake of fighting. That's the worst kind of fight. It means that there's no cause which is getting the rise. It's the fact that you're looking for the rise that you find the reason to fight. Says the Kliyaka, the third temple, like the third well, there was no fight about the third well. Because it's going to be built by Mashiach. Mashiach will usher in an era of peace, of tranquility, rechovot, of spaciousness, of room for everyone and their opinions, of derecheretz. We will live with peace and truth and derecheretz. So then he says, when you have a big city, but two people are fighting, there's not enough room for both of them. And if you have a small space, but they're committed to get along, there's plenty of room for everybody. So the third base of Mekdash, like the third well, which they don't fight over, is called Rechovot, because there's enough room for everybody to get along. We should see it rebuilt speedily in our day. Amen.